Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Uh, good. Much better than last week, or two, well, hey. week, two weeks ago, whenever it was we last recorded. Yeah, back in the mists of time. You said mists of time... I can remember this very clearly. You said this that as a phrase... The last time we recorded, wow. two weeks ago, and I thought it could that's a good name for an Arkham card. That's why it stuck in my time. head, because oh, you, okay, you said yeah. Mist of Time when we were talking about a Mystic card. Because I also used the phrase, cut the mustard, yeah. a few times. Yeah, yeah. So sh- maybe that would be a... Um, Guardian card. Guardian card, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't cut the mustard. Slice the salami. Yeah. What yeah. What is the origin of the phrase, cut the mustard? Hmm. Because mustard is not hard to cut. Yeah. Do you cut mustard by like diluting it? Is that what cutting is? Oh, well, ah, like like heroin, like drugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm using my knowledge of narcotics and applying <laughs> it to mustard. It's yeah, Kerrigan's I don't know. Every so often, it's Kerrigan's <laughs> time. That pops into my head every so often. That was just a random person who wrote in as well. Was they it? made an entire jingle about <laughs> mustard. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Okay. Anyway, I'm looking forward to the new card, Mists of Time. Well, hang on. But, but if, if you then... were cutting mustard like drugs, it doesn't cut the mustard. It's not good enough, right? Yeah. So you're cutting the mustard with something good. It doesn't cut the mustard. Like, the implication is the mustard is difficult to cut, so that you need a powerful tool or a powerful additive mm-hmm. with which to appropriately cut. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've looked it up. Yeah, go on. It, as ever with the internet, it only makes it more confusing. <laughs> to cut the mustard means to reach or surpass the desired standard or performance. Yes. And it says, for instance, Beyonce really cut the mustard in her new song. Great, great example. <laughs> Which you would <laughs> never say. The first thing never. I would reach for, the analogy with Beyonce. She really yeah. cuts the mustard. But it says most often the phrase is used in negative constructions for when something doesn't live up to expectations. For instance, the quarterback couldn't cut the mustard in the playoffs. It appears in a newspaper in Galveston, Texas in 1891-92. The author O. Henry used cut the mustard in his 1907 collection of short stories. But no further explanation. It's not clear exactly why we say cut the mustard. Some have proposed literal derivations such as cutting down harvesting mustard plants. Others have suggested connections Um. to the phrase pass muster when a soldier gets approval after troops are assembled together for inspection. Right. Clues can be found in earlier mustard expressions. Mustard adds spice, zests, piquancy. You'll be feeling the heat. Just for the listener, uh, if this makes it into the episode, Frank and I had a discussion before we started about how we'd want to rattle through this episode. Oh, yeah, sorry. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we are on a five-minute diversion on how, how mustard is cut. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, that's that's interesting anyway. What are we talking about today, Peter? Mustard, apparently. Yeah, We're doing, clearly. after the rapturous reception the last one received, we're doing another mm. scenario-specific episode. Mm-hmm. So we're going to mm-hmm. dig into a scenario in a in quite some depth, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're going to look at the encounter cards. We're going to look at the flow of the scenario. We're going to try and offer some tips for how mm-hmm. to do well at the mm-hmm. scenario. And yeah. might take a quick peek at the return to variation. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes. Why not? Why not? So and what scenario yeah. are we looking at? Well, we picked... But when we When we first started brainstorming... You pick the scenario we did first, to my scepticism, yeah. which was roundly uh, dismissed when we actually recorded the episode. Okay. And that was from the Dumbwich Legacy. Mm-hmm. So this time, we've gone sort of semi-deliberately for a Carcosa scenario, and mm-hmm. that is the Pallid Mask. Mm, yes. Now, Everyone's favourite Catacombs delving scenario. Yeah, yeah. I played Return to Pallid Mask uh, some weeks ago now, um, yeah, maybe a couple of months ago, but it's not fresh, fresh in my memory. You've looked at it more recently. You certainly looked mm-hmm. at the cards, which is a good start yeah. for an Arkham podcaster. Yeah, what yeah. are your kind of memories of this scenario? Playing it, my memories are obviously the map. It's striking because of what it does with locations, but also I think the sense of pressure 
that's my memory of we've got to keep moving, we've got to find the right thing we're looking for. And I think, as we'll look at as we go into it, part of it is it starts with a very vague opening act, which is just kind of find a thing. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a nice different type of scenario challenge, which isn't the act telling you spend these clues. It's sort of just saying it's out there somewhere. Best of luck finding it. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah. Yeah. So so that adds a sense of pressure because you can't tell necessarily how much you've done towards that goal. Yeah. How about you? What, what I mean, what are your memories? What are your sort of initial thoughts? I, I said this at the time, I think when we interviewed Maxine, that it felt a bit like in Bloodborne, you have these, this sort of roguelike style semi-random side content mm, mm-hmm. which is not not it's very good chalice dungeons the chalice dungeons exactly yeah. yeah so you can dive into them and and like find like additional items and things like that sadly you need there's a you need to work your way right the way through them to kind of fight a secret boss to to get all the trophies in the game and they're a bit of a chore to be honest with you because they're not as structured as the main game but they're kind of mm. the 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 randomized nature across a grid really like put me in mind of this scenario. The mm, kind of the mm. way it, it randomly comes out, and it, you're thinking about where the links are going to be and where you want to explore in order to to kind of create the map going in the direction you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even saying grid, we'll get into this when we look at the locations a bit more. You don't necessarily get faced by a grid in this scenario, depending on what you do. Yeah. And there's a, like, I suppose, high-level or big-brain play where you could be really strategic about how you get locations to appear. Yeah. And that in itself is fascinating to me that there's more... Uh, there's very few other scenarios where you can control what the map looks like, but you get to do that in Pallet Mask, which is really wonderful. It's a, it's a bit like Warhammer Quest, right? That's how that worked. You had this stack of mm-hmm. room tiles, mm-hmm. and then when you explored, yeah. you picked the tile from the top of the stack... And then yeah. it got placed adjacent to the room you're in. You'd even, you know, if you hit a T-junction or something like that, you'd have to divide up the stack, but you wouldn't necessarily know where your objective was within that. Yeah. So you'd have to go off and explore two forks and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's really fun. So how do we complete the pallet mask and how does the scenario beat us? Good question, Frank. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> my memory of playing it is that it, I think like you said I think I've slower at first and then turning into more of a rush later on Yeah, it's one of the ones where oh, is there two options for escape at the end there is yeah you kind of stay at the end or you have to get back to the entrance depending on the route through the campaign you're taking getting exactly. back yeah. to the entrance involves going back past the spectre yeah, if you've not killed the Spectre. Yeah, yeah. well, let, let's not get into the Spectre just yet. What, what's what's the kind of general flow of the scenario then? Yeah, so so first you have to find the man in the pallid mask. That's that, the that is telling you find the man in the pallid mask. And he comes out of your he's, deck at the beginning of the scenario, doesn't he? Exactly, he's sitting to one side. And when you first play the scenario, we should probably say spoilers for this scenario and for Carcosa. We're going to be talking about them in detail in case you've not played them. I don't know whether I mentioned this, but but when when we said we were picking a scenario from Carcosa, the idea was that everyone who's listening to us has probably completed a campaign at some point. So <laughs> we'll move through the campaigns because I know some people didn't listen to the previous episode because they haven't played that scenario. So the idea is we'll eventually cover a scenario you have played, <laughs> if we haven't already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless there's a player out there who's only played the first four scenarios of each campaign and refused right, to yeah. go further. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the opening act simply says, find the man in the pallid mask, he's somewhere in the catacombs. Yes. And spoilers for, this, for the scenario, we have created this catacombs deck and in the bottom five cards we have put the Tomb of Shadows along with the blocked passage and three other locations chosen at random. And when you reveal the Tomb of Shadows, it says when it's revealed, advance to Act 1B. Uh, it's a four-shroud, two-eye location, and it has another ability. While the man in the pallid mask is at the Tomb of Shadows, he gets plus one-eye health and cannot be defeated by his action ability, which is his parlay ability to investigate the location. It's a investigate ability to investigate the location and clear him. Yes. So... 
First is find him, and then we get given an option. Either you can just defeat him, or you can spend two eye clues. And that then gives us the fork. If you defeat him, damaging him, you get two conviction, and you need to get back to the starting location to leave. Yeah. If you spend clues to deal with him, you get two doubt, and you need to find the blocked passage. Yes. And that leads to resolution one or resolution two, respectively. So it's one of these situations where you don't necessarily know from looking at it whether you're going to get doubt or conviction. And once you've played the the campaign a couple of times, you might be on a specific route and go, okay, I know that this is the doubt path and we want to up our doubt, so let's do this. And you, you basically get an option there. I would say that the defeat option is harder in terms of finishing because yeah. you've got to get back to wherever you started and you will have gone through this Catacombs deck and the chance of um, Tomb of Shadows being right next to the start is very slim. Yeah. And then the other thing that happens in that version is that locations start discarding one by one, turn by turn. So the Catacombs oh, is collapsing course, yeah. on you. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Is the blocked passage just in the deck? It is in the bottom five. Okay, cool. Along with Tomb of Shadows. You might have already found that by the time you find the Tomb of Shadows. Yeah, so block passage is seven shroud, no clues, and it reads forced when you reveal blocked passage, take two damage, you cannot leave blocked passage this round. Mm-hmm. And what happens if you're on the doubt path is it says ignore the forced ability on blocked passage if each undefeated investigator is there advance. Right. So if you've been lucky, you've found the Tomb of Shadows before the blocked passage. You know the block passage is in the bottom, say, two or three cards in the Catacombs deck, and you just need to do a little bit of exploring to find it, and you don't even get hit by it. If you're unlucky, you've already blundered into it, taken damage, not been allowed to leave, and then you find the Tomb of Shadows and you need to go back there. So that's our goal. Our goal is find the man in Pallet Mask and then deal with him some way and get out again. How does the scenario stop us doing that? I mean, I think that's the sort of the heart of these scenario-specific yeah. discussions, and we probably need to start looking at the encounter deck to yeah. discuss that. Should we? Well, can we take a peek at the encounter, the location deck, the location cards? Mm-hmm. They do become a yeah. deck. Yes, they do. Yeah. What's important to to, to remember? We're, we're kind of looking at the cards here, but the unrevealed side of all of the locations is the same. Mm-hmm. Catacombs, catacombs. And uh, there's a text there, as an additional cost for you to enter catacombs, investigators at your location must spend one-eye clues as a group. So that the main thing you're going to be get, gathering clues for is to explore the locations. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I thought that was, that was, that was important. But there are some it's locations... It's really important. There are some locations, like the stone archways, ignore the text on unrevealed locations adjacent to stone archways. I've been in the situation where with the stone archways, we desperately try and fill in as many locations as we can around it, because then you can mm-hmm. save the clues. Yes. Yeah. Save so clues. The the other thing to note is that pretty much every catacombs, when you reveal them, has a forced effect which tells you where to place more catacombs cards around the location you're revealing. And stone archways is a good example because it just says put the topmost catacombs in the catacombs deck into play to the right of stone archways. So if you have other locations that could put one above or below stone archways or to the left, you'd get lots of uses of the free no clue ability, but the stone archways itself is not giving you those. And then you get other locations that do put more catacombs locations into play. And depending on where they go, some are above and to the right, some are below and to the right. There's a couple of singleton locations that give you a choice. So the Well of Souls is the topmost into play above, below or to the right. It's a nice, flexible option. Yeah. So, yeah, you get... We, we sort of mentioned it already. You get this choice in how you build out the map and then locations themselves might force you to do things in a certain way. Maybe I'll jump in at this point and say, like, a good tip is to try and get four in a square because that gives you options to run in a circle around enemies. So if you're doing any kind of evasion... It means you can put put a location between you and an enemy and keep going around in a loop if you need to. Yeah, That's not always possible, though. Sometimes you end up with the square being eight locations with a gap in the middle. Or sometimes you start trying to do that and you end up with just a long, thin thing. 
And I remember asking Maxine about it, and she said she did a lot of testing. To yeah, sure I remember. Because it was we, manageable. We asked, can you guarantee that you're not going to get stuck? <laughs> yeah. And she said, uh, well, I can't, but in all the tests we've done, no one did. <laughs> yeah. I think she yeah. said she just sat and, like, just span out the deck. Over yeah, exactly. Did, just spat it out repeatedly. Yeah. Other thing to note is that skulls are minus X. X is the number of locations away from the starting location you are. Oh, yeah. So if you just keep going right, you just make skulls harder and harder for yourself. So if you can do anything about trying to keep locations blobbing around the starting location, that minimises how far the map spreads out and controls the skull. So yeah, if you go up one, right one, and then down one, two of those locations, the up and the right from the start are only minus one skulls. But if you did the same thing and you just went right, 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 you're now at a minus three skull. Yeah. Uh, so so that's worth bearing in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, I remember like the, the tactic is to, to explore a little bit in a couple of directions, at least initially. Um, so that you're not like moving too far and of course if you want to get back to the the starting location you're not then traveling as far back it's funny actually as well like describing this gameplay mechanic on the podcast doesn't sound particularly complicated or particularly exciting Mm. but i actually my memory of it is really enjoyable because you're collecting clues you need to be you need whoever has the clues to be at the location you want to move from your the clues are not something oh we need to accrue this clue just to advance so there's maybe a bit more freedom in where do we grab the clues how many do we need you can do a bit of planning of okay i can see that there are four locations left in the catacombs deck so we're only going to need four one-eye clues (laughs) to be able to reveal them all of that sort of thing is just adds this extra wrinkle into how you play and i think it makes it really enjoyable i wonder if there's a I wonder if anyone could come up with like a infinite pallid mask, a bit like we've seen with horror and high gear in Depths of the Earth. <laughs> yeah, that could yeah. Be interesting. Okay, so that's what we need to do. I think it's fairly straightforward what the investigators need to do, but how is the encounter deck trying to stop us? Yes. Um, how is the scenario trying to stop us? Good question. Any memories before I dive into my notes? <laughs> Corpse dwellers. I remember those yeah. guys. Um, I remember the docents being useful because they have a parlor <laughs> test on them to look at the other side of a location, but they get discarded and become corpse dwellers. They can do, yeah. yeah. Which is a reason to keep the number of humanoid enemies down because mm. the corpse dwellers are pretty brutal. Uh, and also, I remember, I, I asked you before we started, well, I suppose this isn't an, an encounter deck thing as such, but there's the, um, the Spectre of Death in there, which is a mm. brutal enemy, uh, an elite enemy with a huge health pool, which I've never mm. managed to successfully kill, I think. It's only three fight though. Okay, well, <laughs> let's look at a couple of those enemies. So we have the Corpse Dweller, as you say, 354. It has a spawn instruction, discard a humanoid enemy at any location and spawn Corpse Dweller at that location. If there are no humanoid enemies in play, discard Corpse Dweller and it gains Surge instead. So exactly as you say, if there are no humanoids around, the Corpse Dweller can't actually come into play. And it has Hunter and Retaliate and hits for 2 damage and a horror. So yeah, kind of beefy. 5 health and no VP is mean and is very taxing. And then the Spectre of Death is a 3-5-I-3. Monster Geist Elite. It spawns at the starting location. It's Hunter and Retaliate. While it's exhausted, it takes one less damage from each attack made against it, and it has a forced effect. After you fail a skill test while attempting to evade Spectre of Death, it attacks you. So it really has Hunter Retaliate alert, but this is pre-alert being a thing. It's two Veep, and it hits for two damage and two horror. It's funny that you should say that it's sort of um, hard to kill, because it's Ghoul Priest levels, really. It's easier to hit and easier to evade. But otherwise, it's the same damage as the Ghoul Priest, same health as the Ghoul Priest. Yeah. What gives, Peter? Why is it so hard to kill? Well, I don't know. I just maybe we're already battered by the scenario, or it's just you don't need to, to beat it to finish the scenario, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd add to it, I mean, this is where the Doom Clock is, is interesting as well. So the agendas, there's two agendas, and it's six Doom and then 12 Doom. 
So it's 18 Doom total. Do you remember in our Undimensioned and Unseen episode, I was like, ooh. And as we collect Doom thresholds, we'll be able to say is a scenario long or short. <laughs> anyway, this is exactly the same Doom as Undimensioned oh, well, there we go. and Unseen. Right. It's exactly so average it's, so far. <laughs> yeah, so it's the same the same length as Undimensioned and Unseen for what it's worth. Anyway, the Spectre of Death is on the back of the first agenda. That's right, yes. So you only have six turns and then you've got the Spectre of Death on you. And I guess the difference there is Ghoul Priest comes out after 10 turns and Ghoul Priest is definitely a scenario ender where a Spectre of Death is a you know, first third of the scenario and out it comes. Yeah. So the encounter deck, we've started to talk about it. It's a 30 card encounter deck. Yes. Of that, 14 of those cards comes from the Pallid Mask. So we've got five enemies, the Docent and the Corpse Dweller, and then three treacheries, which we have three copies of each. And then there are three encounter sets. So from Carcosa, there's Hauntings, which brings four cards. And then from the core set, there's the Ghouls and Chilling Cold. Do you want to run us through the encounter deck like you did last time? So yeah, I'll, I'll start us with the core set cards, Frank, uh, because <laughs> I think they're pretty straightforward. In terms of enemies from the core set, we've got three Ghoul Minions, which are just a 2-2-2 two, two, two enemy. Mm-hmm. Are all the enemies? No, not all the enemies are humanoid. Yeah, but the ghouls. ghouls. <laughs> but, but the ghouls are, so they can be replaced by a corpse dweller. So yeah, we've got three <laughs> ghoul minions. We've got a ravenous ghoul who's two two two. Then we've got three grasping hands. So that is test. You just said two 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 for the ravenous ghoul, but I know Did you I? meant three three three. Yeah, oh, Jesus, right? Well, my brain not working at all. <laughs> grasping hands. That's test three agility. I'm free to put you fail by your ticket damage. So there, that's all the ghoul set. Then we've also got Obscuring Fog, which attaches to your location and gives it plus two Shroud until you pass an investigation. And mm-hmm. Cryptchill, which is test for willpower. And if you fail, you do you discard an asset or take a damage if you can't? Is that how that works? Two damage, but yeah. Two damage, yeah. So that, that that's the core set. Pretty standard stuff just in terms of enemies. <laughs> I guess the ghoul encounter set is a is a decent source of humanoid enemies that is kind mm-hmm. of flavorful for the campaign like you would expect to find ghouls eating the dead down in yes. the catacombs yeah but if you if you're positioning the corpse dweller as a kind of significant threat in the scenario mm-hmm. having ghouls humanoids scattered around the place that feels like a nice kind of combo there for the encounter deck yes I'm getting into editorialising already. <laughs> no, that's good, that's good. In multiplayer, I could draw a ghoul minion and you could then draw a corpse dweller in the same mythos. Yeah. And it's sort of a one-two punch where suddenly we thought we were just dealing with a ghoul minion and now we've got a corpse dweller right on top of us, yeah. which is pretty nasty. Okay. Then we've got the... What's it called? This Is it called the... Hauntings. Sp- hauntings, that's it. For spirits. So we've got... This is from the Carcosa box set. We've That's got right, yeah. two poltergeists, which are three, two, four enemies. They're monsters and geist. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the, the, the scan is it's a bit blurry, so I can't see the, the letters <laughs> on them. Poltergeist can't be damaged except by spells, relics, or encounter cards. It has a parlay on it, mm-hmm. which will uh, deal damage to it if you, uh, if, if you succeed at the parlay. Yes, yeah. So it's difficult to avoid... Parlay. They're not difficult to kill with a spell or a relic. Yeah. And it'll be two actions to parlay it to death. Mm. Mm-hmm. They're difficult to evade and they do do two horror. So they're, they're not... I don't think they're necessarily ignorable. Yeah, they're kind of awkward either way you try and deal with them, aren't they? Mm. Because, yeah, if you want to evade them and move on, it's a difficult test. If you want to parlay through them... It's two tests, Intellect 3, and you can only fight through them if you've got the right gear. So, yeah, they're kind of tricksy. And then you've got Spirit's Torment, which attaches to your location, and then when you leave the location, you uh, take a horror or lose an action. Mm -hmm. And because that's a must, if you don't have any actions to lose, you will take the horror. Yeah. Uh, And to get rid of that, you can spend an action to place a clue on uh, on on the location you're at. With, with it's attached to it to discard it. Yeah. Uh, so the the aim there is obviously, if you're going to be backtracking through the uh, 
the the map later on, this makes it a bit more difficult. If you're doing lots of moving around the map, it makes it a bit more difficult. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's our sort of non-specific encounter cards. Yeah. So we've got two copies of Catacombs Docent. Mm-hmm. He's a three fight, two health, two evade, humanoid lunatic. And he'll spawn in an unrevealed location. He's got a parlay test on him. Action parlay. That's test for for intellect to interpret the guide's ravings. If you succeed, look at the revealed side of any catacombs location and play group limit once per game. Which is group limit once per docent, right? Yes. Yeah, it's not max once per game. Uh, And he only deals a single horror. So he's not difficult to deal with. And actually, mm-hmm. there's a benefit to keeping him around until you can pass that parlay test to get to get a peek. However, the deck also has three corpse dwellers in. So this guy's a real chunk at five health. And he has retaliate and is doing two damage and a, and a horror. Yeah. So you can deal with this by keeping the humanoid enemies right down. Yeah. Uh, but you might be in a position where you draw a humanoid and then you draw a corpse dweller in a single round of encounter cards. Uh, at which point yep. you just have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the kind of the one-two punch that this deck is offering. That yeah. in terms of humanoids in the deck, there's four ghouls and two docents, so that's mm-hmm. six out of 30. Yeah, a fifth. And then there's three corpse dwellers waiting to come out. So yeah, you can do the maths. In multiplayer, there's the possibility that that just snipes you. Tiny detail here, just you were reading out the traits on the Catacombs docent, for newer players of the game who are playing from the two-box model, they won't be lunatic-traded. They'll be possessed-traded. So this is just like a, a the history of the game. Originally, when the game came out, they used the trait lunatic. Oh, yes, of course. And then they've now errated it to to change it to possessed instead. Oh, and you'll should, see if you go on ArkhamDB that, yeah. that they, they still have the original scans, so it has the lunatic trait, but the actual card yeah. text on ArkhamDB has been corrected. Yes, yeah, apologies, I forgot about that. No, 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 that's you were reading the card, so yeah. And we both were playing at the time when Lunatic was the accepted trait. Yes. So there were also three treacheries that the Pallid mark, yeah. Mask provides, and there's three copies of each. Okay. So, nine. so the first, we've got Eyes in the Walls, that is a terror, and it has Revelation, test three willpower. For each point you fail by, take one horror. So far, so uh, Rotting Remains. When assigning horror from this effect, it must be divided as evenly as possible amongst eligible cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to do the pit below and save my favourite till last. Pit below okay. is a hazard that has a revelation attached to your location. If there is no copy of the pit below attached... Oh, sorry, attached to your location if there is no copy of the pit below attached. The location gets plus one shroud. At the end of the round, each investigator at the attached lo- location takes three damage and then you discard the pit below. Yeah. Pit Below has a little subclause there. If there already is one attached, it gains surge. surge. So the only surge we see in this set is from Corpse Dweller if it doesn't trigger, and from Pit Below if it doesn't trigger. So this this encounter deck is not really trying to surge. Mm. The only surges are there to mitigate if an effect doesn't fire. Yeah. Which is striking. And then finally, we've got the Shadow Behind You, which is also a terror. Uh, Revelation, put the Shadow Behind You into play in the threat area, limit one per investigator. You spend an action to look behind you. (laughs) Forced, at the end of your turn, if you did not perform the action ability, you must either discard all of your resources or discard all cards in your hand, then discard the Shadow Behind You. You've already pointed out about Must earlier on Spirit's Torment. Similar thing here. If you have no resources to discard, you can't choose that option, so you'd end up discarding all cards in your hand. So the way I normally try and play around this is have one resource or one card yeah. at the end of my turn and lose that, rather than losing an action every turn to keep looking behind me. Yes, or you spend the action to look behind you until you've spent all your resources. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one, that, because that's a big hit. It's essentially an amnesia or a uh, paranoia. Yes, yeah. You can fend it off, but it becomes very action-intensive to do so. Yeah. yeah. Can so, can someone else look behind you? Because it's a threat card in your area. If you did not perform the above ability. Yeah, someone else could. 
but it doesn't help. Look behind you, but it doesn't help you. <laughs> is there something behind me? Yeah. No. No, you're fine, mate. Okay, cool. But, but I, I think, didn't check. I think there is something behind me. So that is our encounter deck. 30 card deck. This time we have 11 enemies in the deck. So just over a third and 19 treacheries. It generally feels relatively enemy heavy, mm-hmm. but without too many threatening enemies. Exactly, yeah. So it feels like it's not a problem for a standard fighter to deal with most of the enemies in the deck. The poltergeists are definitely the the awkward enemy in there in that they are tricky to evade and you kind of want to deal with them but the standard fighter probably couldn't. The other thing about the treacheries is there's 19 but only 8 of them have tests on them. Yeah. So we've got Eyes in the Walls, which is a Willpower 3. We've got Grasping Hands, which is an Agility 3. And then we've got Crypt Chill, which is a Willpower 4. Yeah. So when we think back to Undervention and Unseen, that had so much Willpower pressure in terms of tests. This is really not like that at all. <laughs> and yeah, there's just, just a Willpower 3, an Agility 3, and a, and a Willpower 4, and that's it. When we look at what the deck is trying to do, it does deal out some damage and horror from those cards, but there aren't a lot of them doing that. It feels like almost that it's just more run-of-the-mill Well, we should include some of this. And I suppose that's made up for by the fact that there are then 11 enemies, so there are plenty of ways that you could be being horrified or damaged that aren't to do with tests. The other thing I noticed when looking through is that there are a fair few locations that attack uh, treacheries that attach to locations. And so, for instance, the pit below is going to damage you if you end up there, and Spirit's Torment is going to horrify you if you leave, if you haven't, if you're not going to spend the action. Obscuring Fog is obviously going to raise the shroud of locations. So when we go back to thinking about, we'll make the map the way we want it to be, and we'll pick and choose where we are. There are plenty of treacheries that will then say, oh, actually, this location has suddenly become quite horrid to stay in, or you need to move on and you might not have the clues to be able to move on, so you have to backtrack, so on and so forth. So there is a little bit of interplay, I'd say, from the encounter deck in terms of trying to make locations be not as good. Yeah. Again, it's it's a funny one to me. When we did, you, um, you, when we did Undimensioned Unseen, it felt like the deck was really coherent in what it did. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't feel like there's as obvious things jumping out to me in this deck. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I was waiting to see the kind of, ah, yeah, I can see it's really pulling together in this way. And maybe it's that this scenario really, it cares about the map and the encounter deck is simply to put obstacles in your way for that map. It's less about it trying to do a particular thing to you. Potentially, yeah. I, I think that the, well, Cryptchill has Crypt in the name, so that sort of feels like that's why that fits in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the the ghoul set is there for thematic and for the humanoid reasons. Yes. The chilling, what's it called? The chilling fog set? Is that what it's called? Chilling cold. Chilling cold. That's there for obscuring fog, which is a similar effect to the pit below mm-hmm. and sort of similar to Spirit's Torment. They're all cards that stop you getting clues off a location to continue your investigation but also might impact you on the way back through as you're trying to escape from the catacombs. Yes, yeah. The, the ones that either that force you to move around, Pitbullo makes mm-hmm. you move out of a location, but to move out of a location you need clues. Yeah. That increases yeah, the yeah. shroud, and you've got Obscuring Fog, which increases the shroud, and you've also got Spirit's Torment, which makes it harder to leave a location as well. Yeah. I've absolutely had it happen where I've said, like, oh, this location's hard, let's move on. We spend our last clues... And then the following turn, a couple, we draw a couple of encounter cards and suddenly the location we're in is Shroud 6 and we're like, oh god, we can't get clues here, we're going to need to back off. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that they're meant to impede your progress around the catacombs, really, is, is, is what I would say. Mm-hmm. And then also get you stuck with corpse dwellers, like, wandering around the place. And it, it can get to quite a big map. So yes, there is can, yeah. the opportunity to give... Some of the enemies, especially the bigger enemies, the runaround. But you're yeah. in a position where, because corpse dwellers have hunter, if you mm-hmm. leave a ghoul minion early on in the map, it can pop back up and then start hunting you later on. Yeah, which is really yeah. interesting. That ghoul minion has been to the gym, got buffed, and now it's <laughs> on your trail. A little lad riding on his back, steering him around. There are a couple of locations as well that punish you for ending your turn there. 
So the Well of Souls has a forced effect after you end your turn at Well of Souls. You must either take one direct horror or discard two random cards from your hand. And the Shivering Pools is after you end your turn at Shivering Pools, you must either take one direct damage or lose five resources. So in themselves, the direct damage or horror is not in itself problematic. But if we're seeing this in the context of there are other effects that start damaging you maybe you failed a couple of tests maybe there are a couple of enemies around or maybe you're just uh, two locations away from a crypt uh crypt horror is that what they're called yeah yeah a corpse dweller corpse dweller. Horror. I've just I've just created an entirely new enemy there if you're a, yeah a couple of locations away you might be desperate to get clues and move on but you don't want to end your turn at well of souls because you're going to get horrified so then do you backtrack and take a hit it all gets really nasty Part of it is how do you navigate this map that you don't understand that's growing as you play. And yeah, I guess you've you've reinforced for me that the deck is about just making it all uncomfortable, yeah. making it problematic. Yeah, yeah. Even if you've done a good job of handling enemies, after Six Doom, we're getting the Spectre of Death, which we've talked about already. Pretty beefy. With 20 health in four player, it's unlikely that you can chew through that in a turn. Yeah. even if you've got a couple of dedicated fighters. So you're probably looking at a couple of turns, which means you're probably someone soaking a hit. Or if someone's going to evade, you want to do that last, because when it's exhausted, it takes one less damage from each attack made against it. So <laughs> it really incentivizes you taking all of the attacks while its retaliate is turned on, and then evading it last, which is kind of nasty. It seems to me that part of what the Spectre of Death is doing is just soaking up a lot of your combat resources to make then dealing with other enemies harder so Mm. if you're using a spell with limited charges or a weapon with limited ammo that means you're not using those charges on killing ghoul minions or on killing catacombs docents which means the corpse dweller is more likely to turn up yeah so yeah yeah, pretty nasty there's another possible big enemy so i thought in preparing for this episode i would look in detail about all of the different paths that could get you to the pallid mask oh yeah (laughs) but i'm not going to go into loads of detail i think that's something that players can explore for themselves but what i will say obviously is it's carcosa so there's doubt and conviction there's also how you finished a phantom of truth and depending on if you completed a phantom of truth or not that also changes how this scenario starts and then finally if you interviewed ishimaru haruku you get her information Yes, and her I was going to ask is, what that what that does. Yeah, so you remember that you've opened a secret passage. Ah, that's it. And when you've opened a secret passage, you get to reveal a catacombs location adjacent to the starting location for free. Uh-huh, that's nice. So you start, you're either starting at the gate to hell if you've won a Phantom of Truth, or you're just being put in a random location if you're if you fail the Phantom of Truth. So that's kind of nasty, that you could start Pallid Mask and be on the Well of Souls, a four-shroud, one-eye location, and desperately trying to get enough clues to head out. Yeah. And then the the nice thing is that if you at least have Haruko's information, you get to a free reveal at the start, which is really handy, because otherwise yeah. you're like wrestling to get clues. Anyway, if you killed her in The Last King, that means you also have... Ishimaru turning up later in the scenario. <laughs> yeah. Just and she's also way. a pain in the ass to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Not if you not if you killed her. If you killed her, she doesn't. Oh sorry, yeah, I beg your pardon. If other way round. So when you advance Act One, you found the Tomb of Soul no Tomb of Shadows. That's when you spawn the man in the pallid mask there at the Tomb of Shadows. And that's when you check the campaign log. And if Ishimaru Haruko is not listed under VIP slain you spawn her at the starting location. Ishimaru is... Do you want to read her to us? Yeah, six fight, four health and three agility. And she has monster presumably possessed and elite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's a hunter. Forced, after you deal damage to Ishimaru Haruku by an effect other than an, an, an attack, draw the top card of the encounter deck. Hits for damage and a horror. Um, damage and a horror, yeah. She's yeah, the one so who her skin brutal. sloughs off her body. Yeah. When she transforms in The Last King, and she's like a terrifying spinal creature. Yeah. I think the. Is the spaceship in Dead Space called the Ishimaru? Oh. You know, Dead Space is like 
the game, the horror survival game in space, where you have like <laughs> lots of enemies who are like her. Oh, I okay. I think it's. I'm going to look it up now because I'm curious. Ishimura, sorry, slightly different. Okay. So this, I guess, is the other major threat in this scenario, which is that potentially you're spawning two somewhat threatening enemies. I mean, Ishimaru is threatening because of how hard she is to hit, and the Spectre of Death is threatening depending on how much damage you can put out. And both of them are spawning at the start and making their way towards you. And like you said, Peter, if you've also left humanoids around that aren't a problem, you you then suddenly have corpse dwellers popping up. And it's worth pointing out that the Catacombs docent spawns at the nearest unrevealed location. So they're ahead of you. They're ahead of you somewhere if there are unrevealed locations in play, which is then also awkward as well, where maybe you were just about to double back on yourself so that you don't end up the map have the map growing too much in one direction. And now there's a Catacombs docent that you know is just around the corner. And you know if we don't spend a couple of clues to go in there and kill it, we're leaving a corpse dweller spawn point, which is is nasty. Yeah, yeah. Maybe at this point it's worth talking about, I think, what was an unintended interaction. Yeah. The Man of the Pallid Mask is humanoid. Ah, so it can get discarded by a corpse dweller. You can be in the Tomb of Shadows trying to put clues on the Man of the Pallid Mask, or indeed fight with the Man of the Pallid Mask, and then a corpse dweller turn up and just pops out destroy the man in the pallid mask so in return to it doesn't change up any of the sets but it adds some new cards in the return to the pallid mask set Mm -hmm. and what it does when you build the catacombs deck it keeps it the same size but you add four new locations into the catacombs and then remove four at random without looking yes so it just basically randomizes the deck a bit more and then it adds a couple of additional rules so it says, for the purposes of Corpse Dweller's spawn ability, the man in the pallid mask does not count as a humanoid enemy. Right. And it also says that while it's Act 2, the man in the pallid mask cannot leave the Tomb of Shadows. Ah, uh, so you can't pull him out of there. Because the Tomb of Shadows gives the man in the pallid mask extra health, <laughs> one way of dealing with him is engage, move, taking a hit, and then he's not got as much health and you can fight. So yeah. it just... It forces you to engage with the scenario in the way that it was intended to be engaged Is with. Is it his investigability on him as well? That's turned off, yeah, because of Tomb of Shadows, yeah. Yeah, but is it Tomb of Shadows? Sh- if you take him out of Tomb of Shadows, could you have dealt with him that way? Yeah, yeah so exactly, his investigability yeah. is yeah. action, investigate, your location gets plus two shroud. If you succeed, instead of discovering clues, defeat the man in the pallid mask. Yeah. So that is a much easier way of of defeating what it, what has become in four-player a 4-7-4. Four, four. Yes, yes. But not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So in Return 2, you can't. I really like the Return 2. I mean, I'm generally speaking a big fan of the Return 2 anyway, but four new awkward locations, they all have quite a lot of text on them, so I'm not going <laughs> to read them all. And then one new enemy as well, the Malformed Skeleton. Yeah. Malformed Skeleton is a 4-4-1 four, four, hunter. And it says when it would resolve its hunter keyword, if there are no investigators within two locations of it, instead of resolving its hunter keyword, move it to the catacombs location nearest to an investigator. So catacombs is obviously unrevealed. So it just disappears and goes to the nearest unrevealed location. And when it attacks, it deals either its damage or its horror instead of both. And it hits for three damage and three horror. So yeah, you pick one of each. But still, hitting for three of either is brutal. And it's this thing that you can't outrun because it keeps appearing wherever you're about to go, which is ghastly and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I guess in closing, what's it like to play against this scenario, Peter? And what are your top tips? I think a good understanding of how the map will develop will help you. Mm. So knowing what direction you want to build the map in and what kind of locations are left in the deck... Yeah, yeah. I think that helps. I think balancing your exploration as well, if you need to kind of get out of there, mm-hmm. I think that's good. Having a, a spare clue or a spare one-eye clues is so useful yeah. for when the map starts to get busy with enemies and you can just slip out of range if you've got enough clues to reveal a location. Yeah. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Early in the scenario, it can feel like let's make progress. 
but I feel like my strategy is get as many clues from easy locations early on yeah so that you've then got a buffer and you can be a bit more choosy later on when you're under more pressure to move on movement tech won't hurt at all big uh, map if yeah. you end up with 14 locations out slap yeah. an open gate down in the entrance and then uh yeah <laughs> carry, carry the nice. other gates with you and yeah i think because of the the prevalence of hefty hunting enemies cards that do some evasion at range or allow you to mm. to move away from those enemies or avoid hits from those enemies when they hunt you i think they're yeah. good something that would let you move through a location with enemies in it i think that would be good as well like a kind of on the lamb style effect or something like that no yeah. what's it yeah shadows in the shadows ironically in the shadows. Enough. yeah and those kind of effects would be useful mm-hmm. that's swapping that... positions with enemies as well it's kind yeah. of nice those are my picks. What about you? What, what's what's your... As you were describing that, I'm thinking, is this a good barricade scenario? Oh, wow. Someone just holds the fort behind you. Yeah, and just put a barricade down if you're starting to create a long corridor. And if you've got then corpse dwellers spawning at range from you... I mean, barricade doesn't work for elite enemies, so through the barricade would come charging the Spectre of Death and Ishimaru Haruko. But still, you know, there's, there's an option there. I think... Yeah, my, my top tip is about the getting clues when you can. And I would also say keeping an eye on when you might be able to discover the Tomb of Shadows. So you know that it's in the final five cards of the deck. So keeping an eye on that is useful. And the more you can create doing a pizza shape with my hand, the more you can create a map <laughs> that has lots of connections rather than as linear, the better. Sometimes you just the, the cards you draw mean you keep ending up with a linear map. But if you can create any dog legs or loops, that seems to be really useful. The final thing I'd ask you, Peter, is when we did Undimensioned Unseen, you know, it has a bit of a patchy reputation within the community as an unliked scenario. What's your sense of where the pallid mask is in terms of how liked or not it is? And oh, man. and when, once you have a sense, why? Oh, that's a <laughs> difficult question. I, d- I don't know, to be honest. Because I think it gets ranked really highly. I would say, yeah, shading on highly. I, I think the campaign as a whole is pretty highly rated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a run of scenarios, maybe aside from the finale, from, do you go, does it go Unspeakable Oath? Phantom of Phantom Truth. Phantom of Truth. Then this, and then Montmartre. Black Stars Black, Rise. Black Stars Rise. I think that run of four scenarios that it's maybe the strongest kind of run of scenarios in the game because they're all really good scenarios it's hard to argue with that isn't it yeah Yeah. i mean i really like dim carcosa as well so i would i would say as a finale that's a fantastic scenario as well yeah yeah perhaps i think what this scenario does well is it introduces this is just my own random thought it introduces a new way of doing locations but in a way that doesn't feel particularly convoluted. Mm, yeah. like it's managed to put a lot of the text for how to generate the deck just on locations. Yeah. So it's kind of kind of simplified. There are other attempts at scenarios where the locations sort of generate along the way. And I feel like Pallid Mask is the standard bearer for how you can do it well. Setting up the deck doesn't take very long. And then every time you play, it's fresh. Maybe that's part of it, that it kind of keeps people on, on their toes because there's a a level of engagement from the player of, okay, what, how and where do we need to go that isn't the same if you know a map like the back of your hand. Yeah, and, and actually, interestingly, even the exploration mechanic, there's there's an element of map knowledge there where there mm. isn't in this scenario. That The layout of the catacombs is fresh every time you play it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, even in Explore, you're like, okay, we really want to find Green Diamond now because that will link us to all of these places. Yeah. Whereas this doesn't have that. And like, you're like, if I stand here and explore, then I know I, I can't get this location. So the only location that matches is this location. So I kind of, I'm exploring, but I know where I'm going to end up. Do you, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Yes. In yeah. this, unless you've gone through right through the deck, you're never sure what's going to turn up next. Yeah. The location will always fit potentially, around where you are. Yeah, that's where the return to is really cool as well. The element of the unknown. Yes, yeah. And it spawns things in really 
weird ways as well. Yeah. So, yeah, some are some are the same, but let me just see. Yeah, no, they're not as weird as that. There's definitely one that spawns to the left, which is just like what? <laughs> that's the wrong way. Maybe that's part of it. It's always going to be fresh, no matter how well you know the locations. You, it's only ever going to be a an estimate rather than a, a sort of surefire thing. Okay, well, we've gone long enough, I think, particularly yeah. after cutting the mustard for so long. The one question I haven't asked you, Frank, and we can we can mm. close on this: Have you been to the catacombs? No. I haven't. Oh. You have? Yeah, yeah. Have I been a couple of times? I've definitely been at least once. I went on my went on my honeymoon when wow. I was in Paris, um, and it's it's a wild place. I would, if you're in Paris, I would definitely recommend going to it. We had to queue for an hour to get in in the rain, <laughs> but it was the, <laughs> it was the most interesting thing we did when we were there. Mm-hmm. And like, it sort of is notable for how much like what you think it's going to be it is yeah very spooky very spooky like spooky turned up high yeah yeah i would like to go one day maybe maybe if i ever go to paris cool well you can get in touch with us if you've got other thoughts about pallid mask we missed because of course we can't cover everything we're on drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com we're drawn to the flame on facebook twitter designed by humans and patreon peter how can people get in touch with you I am United everywhere. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm currently, as of the time of recording, on Twitter. I'm on Discord, and I've got my username on Discord. I'm on Steam. I'm on Instagram as the.unitled. So, yeah, please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm on Twitter as FB. That's E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm around the place as Zooey Glass and Zozo. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast of fans, of fans, for... Ah, God damn it. That's going in the blooper. 